0: The Quarantine Conversation podcast series aims to show what it's like to be an earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella and not all of our scientists are lab coats. Our interviewee today is Colin Rowell, a volcanologist. Uh, Now Colin, in this series, we aim to meet uh, people at various stages in their studies. Uh, So would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher?
1: Uh, formally speaking, I would be a student first, uh, also a bit of a teacher second. Um, maybe less formally speaking, I would say I'm all four. Um, I think, I think being a scientist is all about being a student, being comfortable in the space of not knowing what's going on. Um, so yeah, really all four.
0: Excellent. I think that's a great attitude to have. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, me too. Uh,
0: now how would you define a volcanologist?
1: Uh, Very broadly, a volcanologist is just somebody who who studies really any aspect of of volcanism and volcanoes on on Earth or on other planets. Um, That can look like everything from uh, looking at rock samples and ancient volcanoes to understand volcanoes in the past to uh, on-the-ground monitoring of hazardous eruptions to looking at volcanoes from satellites and other very remote sensing techniques, Um, anything that understanding volcanoes, magma, volcanic processes. Okay.
0: And uh, what kind of, um, or what aspect of volcanism do you specialize
1: in? Uh, Yeah, so I study um, explosive volcanism, explosive eruptions, um, sort of in a combination of of the uh, physical behavior of how volcanoes erupt, how they generate ash plumes, things like that. Um, and then their sort of downstream impacts on climate and sort of the global scale, that kind of thing.
0: Interesting. Yeah, you don't often uh, associate volcanoes and climate as being um, connected.
1: Yeah, and, and that's been one of the things that I've loved learning about is that they are very intimately connected, actually.
0: Now, how did you get into vul- uh, volcanism? It's not like um, when we're young, we dress up as volcanologists for Halloween. Uh, <laughs>
1: uh well to an element there's a little bit of the classic you know I want to be an astronaut when I grow up um volcanoes can be a very flashy and cool thing to study um for me personally um I did an undergraduate in in geophysics at the University of Calgary and um and I really loved the learning and the science and I had a sense that there was just uh so much beyond what I learned out there um so I kind of just wanted more and I was very fortunate to have two very uh, supportive professors um, helped me develop some ideas for an undergraduate research project studying lava flows. Um, and uh, through a combination of sort of their support and, and just uh, diving into it, I guess, um, it wound up being a very rewarding experience um, and I kind of wanted to keep going from there. So I wound up going on to graduate school, uh, working with the Alaska Volcano Observatory um, working on monitoring active volcanism. And ever since then, it's just been a Interesting. We don't
0: often think of there being a lot of volcanoes in um, cold places like Alaska. Uh, Are there a lot of volcanoes up there?
1: Yeah. Um, So I think there are, I think the number is about 60 active volcanoes across Alaska and the Aleutian Islands. Um, So the, the Alaska Volcano Observatory there works on monitoring Uh, whichever of those it can, um, all of them to a certain extent, depending on the method. Um, They also sort of work with uh, the volcano observatories in the Western US, the Cascades, uh, Yellowstone, as well as the uh, scientists over in Russia who who do sort of the other side of the Pacific with Kamchatka there in the Kuril Islands.
0: Interesting. (laughs) Now, um, you've been researching this for a while. Have you made any uh, uh, cool discoveries that you'd like to share?
1: Oh, uh, sure. Um, currently, right now, uh, I'm just sort of working on a, a pretty cool project that's sort of sort of bridging the gap between sort of two kind of classic views of, of how volcanoes erupt. Um, so you sort of have this one classic view where there's you kind of get a very instantaneous eruption. So you can think of it kind of like a mushroom cloud, like you can see in a in a nuclear explosion. It's this very big, impulsive blast. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the other side, you have this sort of view of of this very steady jet-like thing, almost like a jet engine just continuously going. Um, And those sort of are these two two regimes that people think about when they think about explosive eruptions. And one of the things that I've been really working on is showing that most eruptions actually sort of fall somewhere between the two. There's actually, there's a sort of this very time-varying nature to it where they can kind of erupt like a steady jet, but with pulses in there that are more like an explosion. Um, so that's a lot of sort of what we've been working on now is showing that that in reality, volcanoes sort of tend to play between those two worlds.
0: That sounds, um, that sounds great. <laughs> it, it's amazing how most things um, can't be reduced to being one or the other. Most things in life are on that kind of scale.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that's, you know, as science in, in most fields, you sort of, you come up with a picture and then you realize that there has to be more nuance to that picture and you sort of work from there um, building complexity as you go.
0: Uh, what kind of volcanoes are you looking at to do that research?
1: Um, so the one that I'm really specifically been looking at is, is a volcano called Sabancaya volcano. It's uh, in, in the uh, high Indian desert in southern Peru mm-hmm. um, near a city called Araquipa. Um So it was uh, behaved very well for us in the field a few years ago um, and had this whole range of very, very interesting behavior, um, lots of cool eruptions. Um, So that's the one I've been kind of using as a type example, but uh, certainly this applies to just about any explosive volcano you can think of. So the ones that like to create ash clouds, um, they all can certainly exhibit the same kinds of behaviors looking at there.
0: I just like the idea of a well-behaved volcano.
1: Yeah, some some scientists will call them laboratory volcanoes because uh, you can go to them and there's a very high chance that you're gonna see some eruptive behavior because you kinda have this very regular, consistent eruptive activity. So um, we call them laboratory volcanoes because you can really design a field survey around going there and collecting some useful data.
0: Have you visited it?
1: Yes, uh, we were there in May of 2018.
0: Oh wow, Not, not too long ago.
1: No, not too long ago at all. Um, I've been sort of processing data from that ever since. We had a a team of French colleagues there um, from uh, LMV in Clermont, France, and uh, as well as um, our own research group uh, with a combination of uh, thermal infrared cameras and uh, a little Doppler radar system that the French team brought. um, So, sort of a couple of remote monitoring techniques to just essentially just observe these eruption plumes as they were going off and try to pick out some some knowledge from just watching them really
0: wonderful um, do you get out into the field very often
1: uh, not super often I'd say uh, most of the time when I've done field campaigns it'll be you'll know, be a lot of prep work to go into it and you know mon- months of prep to go in and then you go there for really just a handful of days or a few weeks maybe and then you get so much data out of that that you can then spend the next couple of years easily, kind of going over that data and understanding it and, and publishing some science out of it. Um, so we do certainly go to the field some, from time to time, but it doesn't have to be, uh, at least in my case, super consistent.
0: Okay, interesting. It's interesting, interesting that you can study volcanoes um, away from
1: volcanoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and in many ways, the remote monitoring techniques are. Are very good these days um, and a lot of people around the world can do a lot of very amazing science without ever having to set foot on a volcano um, but it can be very both fun and informative to, to do the actual field work for sure. <laughs>
0: um, one thing that I keep hearing is that some really crazy things happen out in the field. Um, has anything really crazy ever happened to you?
1: Yeah totally. Um, so the field work tends to have a combination of things that are really amazing and you might not expect them or maybe you do expect them but they're still just absolutely inspiring um so volcanology has a fair share of that and then of course there's the other side of it where you know murphy's law anything that can go wrong will go wrong um and i've certainly had a fair share of those as well um you know depends on which one you want to start with really <laughs> they're both entertaining to talk about at least in hindsight um The uh, one one that just comes to mind, that was one of my early experiences, um, and that was a very, very inspiring moment. Um, I was uh, on some field work in Kamchatka, in the Russian Far East. There's a number of very active volcanoes there. Um, And I, I, along with a group, had hiked to the sort of summit area of this volcano called Gorely, G-O-R-E-L-Y. And it's uh, it's an active volcano. and but it's sort of just been kind of degassing for the last several years um, so it has this active vent right in the crater which is just uh it's just kind of a hole that goes into the crater and it's just there's just gas coming out of it all the time and a lot of time you can't even see it it's just this hot but you can hear it and you can see it at night um it's just this very hot roaring vent. It sounds like a jet engine, and it is very much like a jet engine, just the hot gas coming out all the time. And as it gets dark, you can see the incandescence and starts to glow when, when you're in the evening. Um, so you go up there, and you can sit, and you can just kind of just be sitting on the rim watching this thing and hear just listening to it roar in your ears. Um, and so we wound up staying up there overnight. And so it was a sort of combination of just listening to this thing, seeing this Kind of fiery red glow, um, just this sort of pit into the earth. You can just see this glow, um, and then uh, on top of that, it was it happened to be the Perseids meteor shower at the same time. So I'm I just have this very distinct memory of essentially uh, lying down on a bed of volcanic ash and listening to this roar in my ears and watching meteors fly overhead, and it was a uh, just very magical inspiring moment, um, one that has stuck with me ever since. So that's one of those ones that you get you just is really positive and you remember for a really long time.
0: Sounds surreal. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And you were saying you have one where things go wrong too.
1: Oh plenty of those. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, One that was so Sabankaya, uh the this more recent field trip was one where you can, you, can, you really have the full the full gamut. You have uh, all the things that went right and a lot of things that went wrong. Um, there's a complex field environment to work in because it's in the high altitude desert in the Andes. So you have a combination of high altitude to deal with. You have nighttime temperatures that get very cold very quickly. You have ash from the volcano itself around you. Um, so that causes all kinds of problems um so for example so we're sitting there at our our base camp was at about 5200 meters above sea level so it's quite high altitude it's enough that you can definitely feel the effects of altitude sickness if you're not careful or if you're unlucky um one of our our field companions johan who was another phd student in my group um he uh he had a combination of altitude sickness a stomach bug from eating something some local food that didn't sit well with him plus he got fine ash into his eye which had already been injured previously so he was essentially half blind um so if there was a period of many days there where he was feeling very rough um just, yeah all of those things were hitting him at once um and uh and on top of all that you got things like fine ash getting into your tent zippers and kind of ruining your zippers or trying to get into your food um, we had the unfortunate problem of uh, having to cook with diesel fuel for a few days, um, which is an extremely filthy and unpleasant experience. Um, yeah, just black, covered in black soot, you know, from having to just try to get your stove working with diesel fuel. Um, yeah, and of course, it's, you're doing this at night when it's, um, you know, the temperatures are just plummeting. As soon as you lose sun behind the, the nearest mountain, it drops well. Um, it's cold very quickly and you're trying to boil water and trying to form food in you but you having to do it with diesel fuel which is just a really miserable experience. Um, so yeah that was a that was a case where there was all the complications all at once but in the end it turned out surprisingly well.
0: Good, good. <laughs> um, now what are the real world applications of your research?
1: So whenever you kind of think about uh, really the, the motivation behind volcano science, it usually comes down to uh, hazards and environmental impacts. Um, that's sort of the, the first thing that we always worry about. So of course, there's the immediate hazards of, of any volcanic eruption. So there's um, the hazards associated with ash fall and pyroclastic flows, which are these hot avalanches of gas and ash and rock that are coming down slopes um, you've got. Um, Hazards to aviation. So, a really classic example is the Icelandic uh, volcano in 2010, Eyjafjallajokull. If I say that right, um, which of course grounded air traffic all across Europe. So, those are always kind of the the motivations behind a lot of it. There's also a lot of long range impacts. So, large eruptions have major impacts on the climate, on uh, crop growth, and local environment. Um, what kind of gases can be hazardous to people in local communities just breathing them um, so these are all the things that we want to look at um, in my research in particular what we're essentially trying to understand is is how a, an explosive eruption plume develops and evolves once it erupts from the vent so you can think of where the material gets emitted and where it gets deposited in the atmosphere has mm-hmm. a huge deciding factor on what sort of the hazards it presents. So, for example, if you have a plume that is erupting unstably, it can then collapse and create these pyroclastic flows, which is really hazardous to people on the ground locally. Alternatively, they can just rise as point plumes, and eventually they reach some point of spreading height in the atmosphere. So they'll reach some point where they kind of stop rising, and then they just spread in whatever the ha- local wind pattern at that height happens to be. Mm-hmm. So the height at which you deliver volcanic ash and gas has a huge downstream impact on where the ash is going to go, where the gases are going to go, and then therefore who it's going to affect. Um, Same thing goes for climate impact. So the climate impact of a volcanic eruption is heavily dictated by how high in the atmosphere it gets. So for me, what I'm really looking at is trying to understand essentially the eruption, eruption and turbulent processes happening near the vent and understanding the evolution of that material as it exits the vent so that we have a better handle on where it's going to go and what it's going to do. Um, so that's really the focus of my research.
0: You're essentially looking at the size and shape of ash clouds, right?
1: Somewhat, yeah. yeah. The Their their size, their shape, um, but also sort of the physics of, of their heat content, their velocity as they exit the vent, the way in which they mix with the local atmosphere. So you have this material which comes up as this hot mixture of gas and ash and then it Pulls in surrounding atmosphere, it heats up that atmosphere, expands it, and then carries it away. Mm. so that mixing process is a big part of what I look at because it really dictates uh, to a large extent what the plume will do
0: so now you're you're focusing on um the relationship between climate and volcanoes um, I, I know that volcanoes are spewing out a lot of greenhouse gases. Um, and so we often think that they will warm the climate, but I also know that there have been some notable eruptions which have actually managed to cool the climate of the planet. Um, how does that work? Mm.
1: Yeah, so uh, volcanoes um, have that sort of interesting interesting duality in terms of how they can affect the climate. Um, so they emit two gases that are really relevant to the climate. One is carbon dioxide, of course, which we think of as being a warming gas. Um, and the other one is uh, sulfur dioxide. Um, so maybe just a quick comment on how carbon dioxide works. Um, volcanoes emit sort of this background rate of carbon dioxide, um, but the, the carbon that they emit tends to be sort of in balance with the erosion all over the planet. So erosion is a process that actually draws down carbon dioxide. Um, so over a very, very long timescales, we're talking millions of years, volcanoes and erosion sort of set this thermostat that is a that is a long-term control on the global climate um and when those two things get out of whack whack, you can get very large scale long-term millions of years changes in climate Um, and to give you a sense of sort of the magnitude of that um, global volcanism emits carbon dioxide at a rate of about two percent of what the human greenhouse gas contribution is so about 150th uh, the magnitude, that's what volcanoes do compared to us. Um, another good way to think of that is it's about equivalent to Canada's greenhouse gas emissions on a yearly basis. So oh, wow. Canada alone as a country can pretty much match the global volcanic output of carbon dioxide. So there's some good ones to keep in your back pocket. Um, uh, but certainly they do, pr- they do do that sort of long-term warming. But the thing that the other side of it is this sulfur dioxide, which... When it is emitted into the upper atmosphere, so you sort of have to get above the weather layer because the weather will scrub this gas out. But when sulfur dioxide gets up high, it creates these very fine dust veils of little droplets. Like it's an aerosol. Um, And that what that does is it will reflect and backscatter sunlight. Um, And that stuff, once it gets up there, it has a lifetime of a few years, but a very very strong cooling effect. So over the course of a few years to in some cases a few decades large volcanic eruptions can create a very strong cooling signal that can have really intense impacts. It creates famines, crop failures, short-term, very intense climate change. But it usually that usually goes away after a few decades at the very latest. There's some modern research that's sort of suggesting it can kick off larger longer-term effects sort of on the 100 to 1,000-year scale. Um, but in general, if you think of it that way, you think of carbon dioxide from volcanoes as sort of the slow, long-term warming effect punctuated by these really intense cooling periods from, from large eruptions that get into the upper atmosphere.
0: Oh, wow. So they're kind of a double-edged sword, in a sense, yes. for the climate.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, that relative question of what's more important, the warming or the cooling, sort of depends a bit on the situation you're asking, but it's a very much an open area of research. Okay.
0: Wow. Um, is there any way to like, harness that to cool the planet, or?
1: There's, there's a lot of people who've, who've looked at that. Um, it, is, it is an active area of geoengineering research, um, which is to use aerosols as a cooling agent um, to counteract global warming. Um, it's, it's inherently sort of a, a bit of a dangerous thing to do. Um, you can think of sort of, if you know the old, the old um, little story of the old lady who swallowed the fly, she swallows a fly, and so she decides to swallow a spider to get rid of the fly, but now she has a spider to deal with. It's kind of the same thing. You're adding a solution to try to deal with climate change, but you could be creating more problems than you solve. At the very least, you may be sort of putting yourself in the situation of being reliant on this as a as a, a defense mechanism, or as a countermeasure to climate change. Um, so certainly the science is out there, and there are people looking at this as like, hey, if we really have to do this, we should probably know how to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's definitely a a dangerous solution or at least one you want to be very cautious about uh, using.
0: Yeah. It's usually better to solve the problem than to create a workaround.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Now your work sounds fascinating. Um, What's your favorite part of, of what you do?
1: Ah, well, um, in terms of, you know, in terms of the intellectual side of it, um, i really love that i can think on these different scales so I, I think it's super cool that i can understand something about how like the local process of a certain eruption works and i can understand some physical mechanism there and then i can see that that relates to this global long-term impact on how volcanoes actually play a role in the whole global system so i think that linkage of of just understanding you know this magma erupts in over here in Peru. And, you know, if you add all those up over hundreds or thousands of years, you have this global system that sort of responds interactively. I think that's really, really cool. Um, but I mean, also let's be honest watching a volcano erupt in front of you is like absolutely spectacular and inspiring. So, uh, you know, I never, I never get tired of, of, experiencing those things and talking about them because they are just yeah they're just absolutely inspiring
0: <laughs> I hope you never get tired of them because um, that would be, be very disappointing
1: yeah I mean I, I feel like it'd be spoiled or something you know to get tired of that you're sort of <laughs> you know losing sight of what's important maybe
0: <laughs> uh now the the uh opposite of that question is um have you ever uh, had to unfairly struggle in the field of earth, ocean, and atmospheric sciences.
1: Hmm. Um, I would say that that for me personally, uh, no. Um, I think I'm somebody who's fortunate enough to to not have too many major barriers in in my path, um, and I've been able to sort of pursue pursue my career and pursue things that I, I want to be able to study and work on. Um, Yeah, I feel very, very fortunate Um, and a big part of that comes from having mentors and supervisors um, who who are very supportive and who will uh, sort of go to bat for me and and look out for me. Um, So having the right people around you makes a huge difference. Um, That said, I've encountered and known many people who really fall into the purposes should be in the same situation as, as me and who've encountered real problems. Um, it can be in an academia, it can be as simple as having one authority figure standing in your way, um, can cause a real problem with your career. Hmm. Um, and I've known, I've known a few students who unfortunately have, have encountered that kind of problem. Um, and of course, you know, there are a number of, of real diversity issues, um, in terms of, uh, disadvantaged people who are either, for whatever reason just discouraged from starting in earth sciences to begin with or we have a harder time getting through and we encounter those barriers so for me personally i feel i feel very very lucky um and i i would hope that uh we can do whatever we can to make sure that that other people have the same opportunities that i've had
0: well i'm glad you've had a, a great experience um you and i hope more people can have that, that experience too
1: yeah yeah absolutely likewise <laughs>
0: um now, of course, it hasn't been all sunshine and roses. Um, we've all been experiencing COVID at the moment, right. uh, or experiencing the uh, the shutdown. Um, how has the shutdown affected you? Have you been able to do your work from home, or?
1: Um... Um, yeah, again, I mean, this is kind of another area where I would, I would largely consider myself fortunate, and certainly it has impacted me. Um, so for example, I'd intended to be doing a, um, a research visit with colleagues in Oregon for all of May. Um, we'd sort of been planning this sort of month-long research visit to just really power through a bunch of uh, sort of collaborative research with, uh, with a team that we work with at the University of Oregon. Um, so obviously that all that uh, was cratered um, and uh, so that was unfortunate but um, luckily I think overall I've been able to sort of kind of come up with a workaround and, and do a lot of work from home pretty effectively Um, which has helped a lot. Um, So I think, yeah, overall, you know, somebody I haven't had so far to deal with anything like financial worries. I haven't had to deal with, you know, a lot of the things that that a lot of people have to deal with right now. So overall I don't really have too many complaints. Sure. There was a few bummers, but um, it's been fairly, fairly good. Um, And, uh, and, and at at the other side of it, I think we're all kind of adapting to things in ways that are, Maybe gonna help us rethink how we do things on the normal day to day as well. So,
0: well, that's that's great. And again, it's amazing to know that you can do volcanology from home.
1: Um. Yes, I mean, granted, if I was re- if I had been relying on doing fieldwork this year, it would have been a different story. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, many of my colleagues who were expected to be able to collect data and cannot, um, you know, that's a real problem. It can be a real delay to. To your research, to your graduate degree, whatever it is, you know, I'm I'm fortunate that, you know, I already have all the data that I need for the work I'm doing right now. Um so in this particular case, I've been, like I say, lucky.
0: Which volcano were you gonna to go to?
1: Oh, uh in Oregon it was it was not gonna be uh specifically to a volcano. We probably would have visited, you know, a couple like Mount St. Helens and stuff, um, but it wouldn't have been uh essential to the trip. The the point there was to go visit some researchers and, and work when work in close proximity with them while we uh Put together some some uh, research projects. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh,
0: now, Colin, those are all the questions I have for you today. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say before I let you go?
1: Uh, nothing too crazy. Thanks for thanks for having me on, and it was a great chatting with you. No worries. Thanks for uh, agreeing to be interviewed. <laughs> Anytime.